Financers, hope everyone is doing well and getting cozy for the upcoming winter season. Sweater weather is almost here in Romania, and to be honest, I'm layering up to avoid those high energy bills. Fun times here in Europe, what can I say? But I will be getting some warmth in December. I'll be coming to Miami at Tearsheet's Big Bang Theory conference, so please come join us for this super fun event on December 8th. Perfect time for a quick visit to Miami. We'll have TED-style speakers, but also experimenting with more roundtable off-the-record discussions, which did really well at our previous conference. We had really great feedback. And um, this time we're talking banking and financial services. In today's digital world, learning not just from banks or fintechs, but also brands outside of banking that are embedding financial services on their platforms. And speaking of Miami, Florida, that's also pretty close to my podcast guest today. I'm super excited to introduce Ken LaRoe, founder and CEO of Climate First Bank. Ken is not only an inspiring leader and a big climate advocate, but also a veteran banker, having started three banks in one lifetime. How many people can say that? In addition to making a profit, banks can be a societal force for good. And we've been exploring this in this podcast uh, throughout our season this year. Um, This is also why Ken came out of retirement to start Climate First Bank, the world's first climate-focused FDIC-insured commercial bank. Climate First Bank joined the Net Zero Banking Alliance in January 2022 and is currently in the process of building out its 2050 Net Zero plan. They really want to set an example for other banks, especially when it comes to emissions reporting. Um, They're doing already their scopes 1 and 2, and they're working on scope 3. Climate First is based in Florida, which is a state destined to be the epicenter of climate change-induced effects, but it's also the epicenter of a huge political discussion. In this context, me and Ken chat about this politicized world of climate change, and it's really not easy to be a climate advocate in Florida where the political winds blow against this agenda. So Ken also shares with us some of his experiences on this front, which are really, really interesting. So let's jump right in. Thank you, Ken, then, for participating uh, at the podcast. Super excited to have you here and to chat about Climate First Bank and also all the developments that are happening um, with regards to uh, climate policy and how that affects also the finance sector. I'm super curious to get to hear your thoughts on that. Um, But I'd like to kind of introduce our listeners to what Climate First Bank does, and if you could share with us how you built sustainability and the cause of climate change into the business plan of Climate First Bank. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, Yes, building it into the business plan um, from the start when we actually put the plan together, put the bank charter together, bank charter application together. Um, we wanted it to be in in our DNA. Uh, my last bank, First Green Bank, was kind of bittersweet when we sold it. it. It felt a lot like unfinished business, but we opened it in 2019. So that was before 
um, I mean, 2009, that was before ESG ever was a thing before a lot of this stuff was, was even, um, had abbreviations or, or acronyms. And so it starts with the name climate first. And, um, my wife, Dr. Cindy LaRoe came up with a name and said, no, it's gotta be in your face. It's gotta dictate right up front what we're all about. Um, so the question became, well, what does that mean? What does climate first mean? It's a bank. It's uh, highly regulated. It's got this um, this big umbrella of, of guardrails, if you will, you know, restrictions. And I happened to be reading the book uh, Drawdown by Paul Hawken. And I was, it, it's kind of the seminal study of what could be done today to reduce atmospheric co2 or draw down co2 and um out of all of the initiatives in the book there's like 100 initiatives i i thought well you know if i go through and pick out the stuff that a community bank can do that can be the foundation of the business plan and so that's what we did and there's really 12 things that a, a community bank can do. And so we integrated it into the plan and we actually integrated it right into the uh, application for the bank charter uh, against my attorney's advice. Cause he said, if you put that in there, it'll, it'll slow down the process. It'll, they'll have lots of questions. And I said, no, 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 it's gotta be in there. I, I want the questions up front. I don't want the questions two years down the road when we're trying to put together some loan program that that's you know climate centric or whatever and it worked it, they there were questions uh, but it was a really nice educational process and i feel like our regulators are are far ahead of most of the regulators nationwide in understanding of of all this stuff of value-based banking and, and what it means um but to go full circle on all that big picture macro stuff the the micro stuff the biggie is our uh, residential rooftop solar program and it we have really gotten traction with it and i'm super excited because we never really did get traction at at first green um and we fully digitized the process so a consumer can go on in three minutes fill an application 30 seconds later they get their answer and in, in no more than two days, they've got their documents in their hands to sign the loan. That's amazing. And definitely solar has been getting a lot more attention lately. I saw that even here in Romania, uh, the um, where, where I'm based, uh, there's the supply is out. Like people are just rushing to buy solar panels um, and electric cars. So it's just uh, a booming interest from consumers uh, globally, really. Um, but to kind of circle back on Climate First Bank, and um, I'm interested in like how you approach your day-to-day -day operations. And here, you know, when it comes to, for example, lending practices, I wonder if you could give some examples for ways um, maybe other financial institutions can draw inspiration from uh, to kind of continue the support in our transition towards a net zero future. Well, one of my dreams going all the all the way back to first green bank was to develop the playbook if you will for um, values-based banking and whether it, it's financial inclusion um, racial equity or uh, environmental issues and it just 
I mean, in the state of Florida, it never took off. No one ever showed an interest because we were basically going to open source everything that we learned. Um, I, I was very fortunate to be involved with the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. And um, from the, they opened in 2009, it was formed in 2009, the same year we opened First Green. And there were only a handful of values-based banks in North America. Now there's, I don't know, probably 20. So it, it is broader than we think. And there are banks that have been converting which is really, um, really fun to see and, and encouraging. Um, but there's a, a big giant divide between community banks and, and then bigger banks. Well, there's three really, there's community, there's regionals, and then there's the giants. Um, the regionals honestly could probably have the most impact if they would adopt any of these practices. Uh, so far, none of them have, which is just crazy to me. Um, but for community banks, it it probably is a lot easier because we don't we don't have the ability to do big deals for dirty energy. You know, we we can't we don't have the scale, we don't have the size. The regionals can, um, and a lot of them are involved in that that type of stuff. Um, but uh, on the on the community bank side, probably the easiest thing to do would be to adopt a, a negative filter or a negative screen for deals they won't do. And that makes it real easy. You, um, the lenders know, well, they can tell the customer right up front, we don't do extractive industries. Um, that's one that's on our list. And in Florida, that could include sod farming, uh, water bottling, and, and we have a lot of that. And we just tell them right up front, no. Um, we just, we won't do it. Um, so I think that's probably the best place to start. And then probably, I don't know how to, how to word it, but the best place to, to prove it is to become, um, B lab, a B lab certified B Corp. You know, that's the only really strong vetted measure to show that a business is really committed to a values proposition. So what a, can you define a B Corp for our listeners? Um, uh, there's a nonprofit called B Labs that started here in the, in the States. And the concept was, well, we'll just, we'll come up with a vetting system and then we'll award um, the B, uh, B Corp certification to companies that meet the criteria. And it's multifaceted. It covers pretty much everything that's, you know, can be encompassed in ESG. Um, and I think there's 200 metrics and out of those, you have to hit 80 to be certified. Um, and again, it includes everything. So you, for instance, we're not so good on financial inclusion. That's a whole separate project with, with a capital P. Um, but we do so much on the environmental side that we get in, uh, so many points there. So we are um, what's called a pending B Corp because you have to be in business a year. We just passed our first year in business. We filed the, the, the remaining documents to become a full B and we will become a full B Corp, but um, there's very few banks that are B Corps. There are some, but there's very few. Um, and then the 
the other businesses we're all familiar with that are B Corps, like um, Patagonia, you know, the, the other stuff, but it, it's the real deal. And if a company's a B Corp, you know that in their heart of hearts, they're, they're going to do the right thing. Uh, awesome. And uh, we definitely need more banks or FIs to kind of step up on this challenge and start including these types of metrics and um, filters, as you mentioned. And I'm wondering here, we just had the uh, bill pass, uh, passing the Senate. Uh, the uh, It's called like the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act, but it also contains a lot of provisions uh, regarding climate and um, uh, transition to clean energy. Uh, what are your thoughts on this bill? And do you think this is the kind of... Um, uh, momentum it brings a momentum to the industry to kind of uh, energize people into taking a more kind of environmental approaches when it comes to investments when it comes to finance and uh, infrastructure as well well to start off I all I can say is I hope so you know um, because um, America is so polarized the politics are so awful um, the first thing is I'm I'm not holding my breath to, to, you know, it may not pass. I mean, who knows, um, um, you know, or, or not get messed up, but I think it's a, it's a really good first step. And I personally believe government has to be highly involved for us to meet any kind of targets of reduction. Um, it's just not going to happen in the private sector, especially in America. Um, and I've really gotten soured and somewhat depressed that it, it probably wouldn't happen at the, at the political level, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Um, but we've only got two years left of the Biden administration term and who knows if he'll get reelected or not. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't know how it will impact us directly. I haven't studied the bill, um, which I, I should and intend to. I've got my sustainability officers, you know, really, really following it closely. And some of our team are following it closely. Um, I think there'll, there'll certainly be opportunities for those of us that are at the forefront. Definitely. With the tax incentives and just kind of pushing this agenda forward, I think just kind of um, just kind of at a mentality level, at, at a um, sort of even political level, it validates uh, this trajectory and um, at least it gets it and it gets this agenda closer to the top of mind for a lot of folks. I feel like if this wasn't uh, something not even to be considered just a couple of years back, or it was just a fad, it was just, um, you know, something the kids, the new kids on the block one of these days, this is uh, definitely putting it up there. It's, uh, it's um, really validating. That's how it felt to me at least. Um so, and I hope that the uh, folks in the banking sector and the finance sector are, you know, it will start to take this seriously and will start to um, truly consider um, the renewable sector as an opportunity. And I wonder here why this hasn't happened earlier. Was it purely because of economic reasons or why do you think it's 
taking us so long to embrace this type of uh, thinking and perspective, really. Uh, why do we need to have the sun burning down on us to um, literally start doing something about it? Yeah, why do we have, why does everything have to be burning, um, literally, uh, to to do it? I, I mean... I don't know how much of the population are still climate deniers that are actually saying, oh, it's not happening. It's probably smaller than it was, maybe, hopefully. Um, but when you've got this divisive uh, political stuff going on in America, where it's, just, it's all name calling and it's uh, climate alarmists and um, it, it, it's it's like the whole. The Koch brothers initiatives. 15 years ago and i i read somewhere they spent some puny amount of money five million dollars or something in pr and marketing and changed the whole uh the whole dialogue on climate you know 15 years ago and that's really where it started happening and then of course fox news picks up on it and all the the right wing um you know garbage um, and then the name calling starts and all that. So I don't know. Um, again, I, I, I don't know that everything being on fire is actually going to help, <laughs> at least not in America. We're just, we're so far behind and so stupid about this. I think it's at a global level, to be honest, like here in Europe, we have like very similar challenges, even though, you know, Europe is also in a, in a sense leading on climate policy, but it's still, we've got a lot to do on the educational frontier as well. Um, but hopefully we'll get there. Hopefully we'll get there. Um, but to be honest, this, um, this deal passing the Senate did kind of give me um, thinking, we're at least imagining a future where, um where we do have a sustainable economy and we are, you know, putting people first, we're putting life first, but we're putting the earth first. Um, so, but I'm imagining in this sustainable economy, um, what would banks be doing differently? So I'm, I'm putting forward this exercise to you. So in your view, what would a sustainable economy look like in the U S in the future? And how differently would banks behave in that scenario? Um, okay, but before we go to that, though, real quick, you just said something that was very um, interesting and powerful, the, the education piece, because it is almost universal, my progressive, you know, liberal, whatever you want to call them, friends, um, say, yeah, we've, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. Oh, my gosh, we're you know, not going to leave a planet for our grandchildren, and then they, uh, or children, and then they walk across the parking lot, and they get in their um, um, Cadillac Escalade or whatever and, and drive off. And then they go to their starter mansion that's got a $1,100 a month electric bill. And, the, and, and all's fine, you know, because they're writing checks to Democrat candidates. So that's what incenses me almost as much as the, the right winger that's climbing in the jacked up four wheel drive truck. It's getting eight miles to the gallon. Um, so, um, back to your question was, 
Um, so what was the question again now that I've got distracted? <laughs> no, yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely with you on that one. It's about walking the walk and uh, not just talking the talk. Uh, and uh, but I like the parallel, you know, that the two extremes that are basically doing the same thing. But, you know, one thinking they're better than the other one. It's actually at the end of the day, it's really not. Um, but um, I was suggesting an exercise of imagination. So in a sustainable economy in, a, in the US, what would that look like? And uh, how differently would banks behave in that scenario? That's a tricky question because it, it, it comes down to, I, I don't know, Brian Monahan just had an interview or something with somebody from Bank of America, the CEO of Bank of America, and he was talking about they have $40 billion in, um, in a pipeline or in loans to dirty energy. Um, but they've got, you know, $50 billion in clean energy. And it's the whole just transition argument. And I, I get it. The Those big banks, they a loan is a contract, you know, the, under the terms of that contract, the bank can't unilaterally go in and say, well, guess what? We don't like what we don't like your industry. We're, we're calling that loan. Um, so there's no way they can overnight turn it off. I believe that, I mean, if I was CEO of bank of America, every one of those loans that came due, I would say, we're not renewing it go find somewhere else um, if no, if for no other reason to make it more difficult and more costly for dirty energy to keep doing what they've been doing um, uh, because the externalities are not factored in. If the externalities were not, were factored in, uh, they wouldn't be making near as much money and, and they should have to pay. So that's one um, kind of unrelated uh, uh, answer to the question or observation to the, to the question. Um, but at the end of the day, what would it look like? It just, I'm not sure. I think it just, we have to change everything we do and we have to change it now. It it's, you know, there, there may need to be a transition, but there are dates on those loan renewals, you know, there are dates on those, on everything and the minute those dates come up there needs to be something proactive and and uh impactful done but it, it really it, it involves everything it involves a deep dive into absolutely everything a bank does or any business does and well speaking of, of of loan renewals um, is it as easy as pulling the plug that way? Because uh, when we had the activist shareholder initiatives earlier this year, they were suggesting this exact same thing to have a plan for, you know, to stop renewing these contracts. And then the executives uh, were of, of these banks, of the biggest banks in the U.S., uh, came back and argued that it just wasn't feasible. It was too sudden. It was it, it, it couldn't be done. So what's your take? You have, so, you know, you, given your position and your experience in the industry, um, what's your opinion on this? Like, is this a feasible plan to, to stop these renewals and orient towards other contracts that are more sustainable? Or is it like, does the math not work out? Well, it's, I think it's legally feasible, but whether it's practically feasible, that's what I'm not, 
that's where I can see the problem. Um, legally feasible, a, a loan matures, you can say, no, we're not renewing it. It, it doesn't matter how much you love the company or, or the income stream or whatever. Now, whether the CEO of one of those big banks that's um, got all the shareholder pressure can actually get away with it and keep their job, that's the other question. Um, and the answer would be probably not. Um, I don't think Larry Fink's, uh, I think Larry Fink's a good guy. It, in his heart of hearts, he's wanting to do the right thing. I think Jamie Dimon's a good guy in his heart of heart. He wants to do the right thing. And we've seen a couple of years ago, them all coming out with big shareholder missives claiming that they're, um, you know, doing all this ESG stuff. And now they're kind of reversing themselves. And that's all because of shareholder pressure. It's, it's, irritating it's tragic um but i mean i yes legally they can do it i guess what we're reading is the reason they're not doing it is because they're getting hammered every time they bring that up and then somebody starts screaming woke capitalism and all that kind of stuff it, it's i i don't know there was a period where activist ceos were welcome but it seemed like that only lasted like six months and now it's back to, you know, keep your mouth shut. And, um, I mean, I, I worry about it at, at this tiny little scale that I am. And if I, if I get too vocal and too out there that somebody on my board is going to put their arm around me and say, Hey, Ken, you know, scale it back a little bit. Um, they haven't, and I hope they never do, but I, I do worry about it. Yeah, it's a definite pressure coming from, uh, you know, you have the shareholder pressure and then you have the consumer pressure and, you know, the, the executives are caught in between. They're, they're, they're you know, uh, we have to acknowledge that they're put in a difficult position because, um, uh, you know, they're meant to execute and um, deliver and, you know, and deliver their fiduciary obligation. So at the end of the day, so it's a it's a tricky one. Well, the consumer part too, that's a good point. A good thing you brought that up because in my annual letter to the shareholders, um, I put a sentence in there. Uh, oh my, what a disruptive year we've had. Um, you know, more pandemic, da, 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 da. And an out of control Florida governor and legislature, which is absolutely the truth, unless you're a right winger. And, and, and you think that Ron DeSantis is is doing wonderful things with the don't say gay bill, the, you know, anti-woke bill, every other um, authoritarian thing that he's crammed down our throats. Well, of course my email blew up and my phone blew up and everything else from shareholders saying, you know, I disagree, take me off the list. I want to sell my stock. So it's, it's like, I mean, to me, that was a fairly, accurate i mean a really accurate fairly benign statement and yet i had to you know put up with all that crap um but i've also been called uh oh what the guy call me a uh capitalist bastard um on one of my emails that i had sent out i don't i don't know what he got so spooled up about but it's you know it's both 
it's mainly from the right, but every once in a while I get some crazy thing from somebody on the left also. Wow, that's really crazy. It's just it's really disappointing to see how polarized we've become. And yeah, I'm really not sure what's going to happen on that front. Um, it feels like it's kind of at the end of the list because now there's a lot of new issues that are coming on top of the list. But I do believe that it's valuable to put yourself out there and push forward this agenda. And hopefully when this is all over, we can look back and it will have been worth it. So thank you, Ken, for joining us today and sharing your story. And thank you to our listeners as well. If you'd like to read the transcript of our conversation, head over to tearsheet.co. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Green Finance Newsletter in your inbox every other week. I'll see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye.